Welcome to Culture Matters, a podcast exploring the intersection of faith and culture. I'm Elizabeth Woodson, and I'm here with Tamarcus Fraglin. And today we are excited to have Caitlin Beatty on the podcast, editorial editor for Brazos Press and writer of the book Celebrities for Jesus, how personas, platforms, and profits are hurting the church. And I'm excited to chat with her about celebrity and platform in the church. So let's get started. Caitlin, thank you for being here with us today. We really appreciate it. We're excited for our conversation. Uh, For those of our listeners who may not be familiar with you, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and your experience both in journalism and the publishing industry? Yeah. So I've pretty much spent my whole career inside Christian publishing, uh, first at Christianity Today magazine, and then now in Christian book publishing at Brazos Press. In addition to that, I, I grew up in the evangelical movement. I write about you know, coming to Christ at an altar call when I was 13 mm-hmm. and just was really steeped in evangelical culture from a very young age. So both personally and professionally, I feel like I've been given a bird's eye view of some of the dynamics and trends and we might say kind of pitfalls or blind spots within the movement. And so I wrote this book to really identify um, celebrity dynamics and to show the ways that they could often counteract the kind of gospel that we're hoping to profess. What does it mean when we put people on pedestals? Why does there seem to be a lack of accountability? And I, you know, I'm sure like you and a lot of listeners, I see the same headlines that you all do and I'm discouraged by them. And so ultimately wanting the help, wanting to help the church be better and, and be more Christ-like in its witness. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, like you said, you know, our, our headlines, news feeds, you know, news channels, you know, we, we've seen even recently just a lot of uh, leaders, huge celebrity leaders in the Christian community fall from grace. So I think about like Carl Lentz or Robbie Zacharias, you know, CT did a whole podcast on Mark Driscoll um, and the Mars Hill church situation. But when we think mm-hmm. about Christianity and people who are well-known, being Christian famous isn't really a new thing, <laughs> right. um, but mm. it feels like something's changed. Uh, something's changed mm-hmm. in our 20th, 21st century expression mm-hmm. of evangelicalism. And what do you think that is? Like when we look at the mm-hmm. history of Christianity and fame, what's mm-hmm. different now than what used to be generations in the past? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it's definitely the case that there have always been famous Christians or people who became Christian famous um, I think fame is has traditionally been relatively healthy when it's not the thing being sought, but comes as a byproduct of virtue, of godly leadership, of good works in the world. You people come to know about your work and you establish a kind of renown. And then if you find yourself with it, figuring out how do I steward this well, how do I not let this go to my head? I would say. Uh, media and especially social media have added jet fuel to this problem. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we all, in some sense, have the capacity to become many celebrities using the tools of social media. And I tend to think that media creates a distance between 
who we are as leaders and our audiences or our fan base. And within that distance comes really a lack of proximity, a disconnect from the kind of communities that can reflect back both our strengths and weaknesses. You know, anybody in a position of leadership in the church needs people who can speak the hard truth in love. And I think with some of these stories that we've read about, there was a real disconnect and distance between the celebrity leader and the people they were trying to serve. And in that distance, the person could do and say things behind closed doors that they would not be able to get away with on the stage. I think two of you know, accountability structures. And in the story of Mark Driscoll, Carl Lentz, it seemed like the people surrounding them kind of fed the celebrity dynamics rather than challenged them. Um, they were fan, you know, they were surrounded by fans. And I actually don't think that's good for any of us to just right. be surrounded by people who adore us or think we're the greatest. You know, we need people who can offer an honest assessment of us, which is to say they love us with all of our strengths and weaknesses, you know, with all of the things that we do really well and our and our blind spots and places where we need to grow and mature in Christ. Um, so I think, yeah, accountability is obviously really important and making sure that accountability structures include people who are not going to just hype up the main leader who are able to say the hard thing when they see problems starting to arise. For sure. No, that's, that's a good point. Um, and I think kind of, kind of along those lines, cause there's, there's definitely that pressure when you're, you know, when, uh, you know, the majority of the people following you are, you know, online and, you know, in some other place and they never actually kind of get that encounter. Um, but I think, you know, as we look at a lot of these um, leaders as we're talking about, a lot of them were shepherding or pastoring mega churches, even, you know, locally. So it's like, you know, you're you're pastoring a church of, you know, tens and 20,000 people. Uh, do you mm -hmm. think like, is there something in that model even itself that contributes to the problem? Is there a way to... Mm -hmm kind of step in that space where you're able to still have that kind of accountability and, um, mm -hmm. and, and, and steward it well, or do you think even that the model itself uh, kind mm -hmm. of leans towards being problematic? Yeah, that's a good question. I get this a lot. It's essentially are really big churches part of the problem. <laughs> <laughs> and I, and I'm not going to offer a blanket statement against sure. all large churches. Yeah. I think that there can be really healthy large churches. And I think that there can be actually really unhealthy small churches. Mm -hmm. I would say that there are a couple things about the mega church model that tend to center themselves on celebrity pastors. The first is in a lot of mega churches, there's a real emphasis on the pastor as a really good communicator and preacher. And so the main event of church becomes the sermon from mm. the really amazing preacher. And, you know, I appreciate good preaching and preaching is a really important part of what happens on Sunday mornings, but it's not in my view, the, the main thing. And when your church is oriented around that event, um, if your pastor is a great communicator, but also has, significant character issues, and yet the preaching is drawing more people into the church, it can kind of create a justification. Like, he's a great preacher. Yes, he has these other issues in staff meetings or 
he's being really secretive about his use of technology, but who are we to challenge his leadership because it's drawing people to the church. It's working. Our numbers are growing. Our budget is growing. We don't Mm -hmm. want to stop the train because it's, you know, it's going down the rails really quickly and we seem to be heading towards success. The other dynamic in a lot of mega churches is the use of screens. And, you know, I go to a church where we have the lyrics of worship songs on, you know, on screens and we do a live stream for people who are watching from home. I do think screens tend to create further distance between the speaker and people in the church, between the pastor and the flock. Um, I heard someone recently comment, <clears throat> even though they could see their pastor from the stage just with their bl- with a blind eye or with, yeah, <laughs> they could see their pastor from the stage, but they found themselves whenever the pastor was preaching that they kept wanting to watch the screen. And I think screens tend to reinforce a sense that pastors are there to be entertaining. We consume their content. You know, they offer inspirational content for our felt needs. And that further disconnects us from the pastor as a shepherd of souls, which I think is really primary to the work of a pastor. And in order to pastor well, you have to be able to get to know the people in your church. There has to be a relationship. And I just don't know how a lead pastor gets to know 10,000 people in their church. It's just not even possible. So um, yeah, like I said, it's not like all big churches are bad, but I do think that they are fraught. And because they're fraught, they require even more wisdom and discernment in terms of how the pastor is presented and the role that they play. Yeah. You know, what, what it makes me think of is just the ways in which our ministry philosophy is formative. So the way in which we choose to um, set up church or liturgy, I mean, even words you may not use to describe your church service, all of those things are forming us in a specific way. And the moment that we're in, there's a lot of, I think, good uh, criticism that's being given towards evangelicalism. And so we have this uh, faith tradition that has centralized an individual charismatic speaker. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have this move away from the creeds and for more traditional um, church life and and a parish and uh, a shepherd who would know his people. Um, and we've yes. seen that just mm-hmm. shift over years. Uh, and I mm-hmm. think we're in a moment where we're like, oh, okay, this is some of the fruit of the decisions that we've made. But mm. the necessity to say, what is the center point of my worship experience? And is it a person or is it a community of people that I'm coming together to do life with? Because again, people are asking, well, what is church in the first place? And people are assuming church is just coming to listen to a sermon on Sunday. And it's mm-hmm. so much more than that. Yeah, I was gonna say, mm-hmm. I think, and I think that's an important question to ask because I mean, I just think conversations I have, and you know, you ask people like, what kind of church you go to in the denomination, and a lot of people will say like, yeah, like my church isn't liturgical, and even like in that statement, it's like every church has a liturgy, like mm-hmm. rather you're aware of it, rather you're intentional about how you go about it, like every church has a liturgy, and I think part of part of what you're getting at is is everybody doing the work of it looking inwardly and saying, okay, what is, what is that liturgy? What are we pointing people towards? And if it's mm-hmm. not the main thing, then what, what needs to change? How do we need to adjust so that we are getting people towards the main thing? And that can look a number of different ways, but we have to be aware of it. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, when I talk to people 
about kind of celebrity Christian dynamic who may be in smaller churches or overseas. And like, we don't know what y'all are doing. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's one question that people can have is why would people follow, like stay mm-hmm. with an abusive mm-hmm. leader? Or you can obviously mm-hmm. see they in their mind, because I want to have a lot of sensitivity to people who have been in these environments and, and experienced trauma. Um, but the question from the outside can be, well, why mm-hmm. would you stay with someone that so obviously mirrors unhealth? Um, mm-hmm. And so in your study, in your work, what have you seen or some of the reasons why we can stay in these environments and fuel the people um, in mm. their unhealthy behaviors? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is such an important question. Um, and, you know, as you just said, I you don't want to blame anybody for staying in abusive systems because... So for some, for so many of us, it's not until we're out of a system that we see it for what it was. And when you're in it, it can be really hard to have a clear eyed view of the dynamics at play. I would say the celebrity leaders that we're thinking of are almost to a person incredibly charismatic. Mm -hmm. Um, They are people who naturally draw people around them. Oftentimes they are casting a really exciting vision of what their particular church is and is doing in the world. And it's like, God is uniquely on mission in and through our church. And if you are part of this, you get to be, you get to play a part in this really important kingdom work. And I think for a lot of Christians, of course, we want our lives to have a kingdom impact. We want to be part of God's mission in the world. And here's a leader who's saying, if you join me, you can be a part of that. You can be part of something special. Mm-hmm. So I think it it feeds a desire for us to be super Christians, <laughs> you know, for us to be part of ex- something exciting. It's also the case that in a lot of these communities, people are maybe coming out of the system, but are looking back and saying, yeah, that leader was abusive, was really unhealthy. And yet all of my friends and family were at the church. I had real community and sense of belonging, even if it was oriented around this person and that was unhealthy, we were all in it together. You know, we all have a desire for belonging and identity through participation in a community. It it meets a real felt human need there. I think too, sometimes people are afraid to leave. Like if you have been told this leader is uniquely called by God, blessed by God, anointed, and you have started to really believe that you start to wonder if I step away, if I critique the system, if I raise concerns, am I actually going against um, someone who God has uniquely ordained. I don't want to be disobedient. I don't want to be going against what God is doing. So I'm just going to maybe try to reform from within and quietly go about good work. Um, I do think, you know, in a lot of these situations, um, we just, we all need to have clear eyes about abusive dynamics to be able to spot patterns of, entitlement, narcissism, verbal lashing out. That's something that comes up in a lot of these stories of fallen celebrity pastors. They're just, they're not very nice people (laughs) to, to their staff, to people they work with, like just, um, yeah, becoming wise and discerning 
and really coming back to this central idea that God doesn't actually need any one specific leader mm-hmm. to stay in a position of power in order for God to do his purposes and work in the world. And the, the moment we start thinking that we are, I think we're in dangerous territory. That's a word. Yes. God, God doesn't need any specific person, right? He, he chooses to use us. Um, makes me think of Moses, right? He's like, like, who am I? Like, I can't, I don't, he's like, what's in your hand? Like I can, Mm, yeah, I can do it through you because I'm the one doing the work, Mm. right? I can, I can use any vessel. Um, I think that, yeah, that was so, so helpful. Um, what do you think, right? In, in, in lines of, I guess, processing, uh, for people who are kind of, uh, in that, in that space and in that scenario, what is the difference between as you start to identify some of those markers and you're wrestling with the thought of like, to what extent do does extending grace um, and being mm. uh, forgiving and wanting to give the benefit of the doubt for our leaders? Because we know that, you know, someone that's in leadership, you know, in, in a church and in that way, there's a lot of spiritual warfare and it's difficulty. And so we want to pray for our leaders. We want to give them Mm. um, grace to be able to grow because they're human too versus Mm. um, that kind of unhealthy being trapped in the just kind of blind following under clear Mm -hmm. unhealth. Like where, uh, Mm. where, where does it maybe shift from the, the former to the latter? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I will try to answer with the caveat that, maybe because I've seen too much. Mm. (laughs) I, mm, it's not always second nature for me to extend the benefit of the doubt. (laughs) And I actually really, I really appreciate and honor that impulse Mm. among Christians in a local church to say, our pastor is human. So of course they are going to mess up. Of course they are going to disappoint us. Of course, Um, They are growing. They're a work in progress. God uses flawed people. So God can use this flawed person. When we think about forgiveness, you know, it is just a theological foundational point that everyone can and does receive forgiveness from God through the work of Christ on the cross. And that is available to all of us, Mm -hmm. including our pastors who really, you know, even the ones who mess up (laughs) majorly. Forgiveness is not the same as giving someone a new position of leadership Mm -hmm. in the church, Mm -hmm. just because we can say, I forgive you for the ways that you've hurt people in the church or misused your power, that doesn't mean that you then deserve to re-enter the spotlight, at least not anytime soon. So forgiveness does not equate to, and you're back, you know, within six months to a year, and we can just all move on as if nothing had happened. And actually, I think <clears throat> what is often the more loving thing to extend to fallen leaders is an opportunity to sit out, to stay out of the spotlight, because there is a kind of work and transformation that can only happen out of the spotlight, off the stage, in quiet and private ways. And if somebody has used the power that comes from the spotlight to harm others, 
that's actually a dangerous place for them to re-enter at least anytime soon. Hmm. I don't have a super specific timeline of like, it has to be two years, has to be five years. You know, I just think I, I, you know, like I can't offer that prescriptively for all churches and all leaders. I would say though, if a pastor who has royally messed up is clamoring to get back to the spotlight, they're probably not ready to get back in the spotlight. Like if you are seeking a quick re-entry, you're probably not actually ready. I would be more comfortable with the person re-entering ministry if there's much time taken away from the spotlight and almost trepidation. Like I don't want to set myself up to do the things that I did in the past. I don't want to make the same mistakes. I want to do this really carefully and with the time that it requires. So yeah, I don't have a timeline in mind, but I think the posture of the person is really important to look at. I think that what you said is so good. And it reminds, I mean, you talk a lot in the book, the way you talk about how, right, celebrity can affect us. It's almost, it almost can be like a drug, right? If you're um, constantly like in need of receiving it. And so if I can like put an image to what you described, it made me think like the same way somebody who might be recovering from alcohol, it's like, hey, even even after forgiveness, even after growth, you're taking steps, you know, maybe going to the bar with the guys isn't going to be a good place for you given, mm. you know, the things you've wrestled with and struggled. And so it's like, hey, you're for, you're forgiven and we still want you to be a part of the body and we still want to worship together. We want you to be here. But, man, it it might be too tempting to get back into that kind of space. Like, hey, just just be. Like, let's let's focus mm. on that, that faithful hidden life, right, like that you described at the beginning of the book. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, like how that could minister and show like, oh, like, I can be known by God and loved by God and seen by God. It, it's not about my gifts. It's just mm. belonging to him. And it's like, we, we actually withhold that opportunity if we too quickly thrust people mm-hmm. back in the space. Yeah. Right. That's a, that's a really good, the metaphor of addiction and like going to the bar and like, you know, this person's friend, like who has struggled with alcoholism there's a way to say, Hey, come to come watch the game with us. Come do, <laughs> I don't know. Like what do men do together? <laughs> How do men bond? Um, Nothing much. You know, come, come to the game with us. Like we want, we want to be with you. We want to spend time with you. We want to see how you're doing. Meeting in a bar. We know because we love you is like not actually loving to put you in a position where you could be easily tempted to fall back into old patterns that are destructive. Right. So, and I, I absolutely agree with you. I think the spotlight has an addictive quality. I mean, in a micro way, I feel that anytime I log on to Twitter and see people commenting and I get a little dopamine hit, like, mm. Oh, people, people are paying attention. I'm saying something that people find interesting. Like, we all have to check our uh, dependency yeah. on public attention and public That's feedback. Good. And are we putting too much of our own sense of identity and self-worth in the approval and perception of other people? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, the spotlight's not neutral. Um, hmm. You know, me and Tamarcus were talking about this as we were prepping for today's conversation, um, is that when you're in a certain environment and people, you know, take your words a little extra special or, you know, that they will give you a special seat down front or they will invite you to special exclusive gatherings. Like you get special treatment because you are a certain kind of person that's going to shape you. Um, and it's almost mm-hmm. as if we have to, like you were you were just talking about, be intentional about how do I push back against that? Because if I don't push back against that, it's going to change who mm-hmm. I am. Um, mm-hmm. Because what I find interesting is that I think, I want to say most folks that we see, um, you know, whose stories don't end well, started well. Mm-hmm. Like they started mm-hmm. with good intentions. They really wanted to make an impact for the kingdom, um, but they're the amount of people that started to gather around them and that environment shaped them in such a way. And there wasn't this active pushing back. Um, and so that they were crushed in upon by the waves of celebrity. Um, and, mm. and, I, and I think it is a joint effort between that person and the people who follow them. Mm. And mm-hmm. so in your work and writing, what are some of the ways that we as followers mm. contribute to the unhealth of the leaders that we follow? Mm. Mm. Yeah. I mean, we talked a little bit about loyalty mm. and I would say there's a difference between honoring and loyalty. Mm. And I don't actually know that we are called ultimately to be loyal to our leaders or to people whose work we appreciate. I think we are called to respect, you know, um, I'm comfortable with the idea that people in churches are placed in positions of authority that others don't, don't have that same authority, but that authority is always conditional based on the calling of God. You know, we are ultimately called to obedience to Christ over loyalty to a particular leader. So just even as followers, examining our, our, our own hearts and imaginations. Have I put this person in a category where he or she is kind of untouchable or kind of on a higher spiritual plane than everybody else, because I happen to like their preaching or their writing, or I just like them as a person. Um, it just, even the people I, I love, and adore in my life, you know, my family and friends. Um, I never want to be in a place where I'm so loyal to them or admiring of them that I can never ask a hard question Mm -hmm. that I can never push back or offer a different perspective. So yeah, just kind of retraining our hearts and imaginations and making sure that we haven't given undue loyalty to even the people we, we admire and respect. I think some of this too, is the ways that through our consumption habits, you know, with books and podcasts and the Christian conference circuit, um, we in the crowd or in the audience, sometimes attached to people as fans, like, I'm this kind of Christian because you know I'm a Beth Moore Christian or I'm a Lecrae Christian or whatever. Like we we derive our own sense of identity and self uh, value through our attachment to particular figures, hmm. and 
I think this, you know, part of this is just consumerism, evangelical American consumerism, um, and the primacy of kind of charismatic individuals over institutions. Um, so on that point, reorienting our own sense of Christian identity around participation in a local community. And the reality is that at the end of the day, even though I might say, oh, I appreciate this person's writing or this person's sermons, like in my daily lived life, they can't actually minister to me in any direct way. But hopefully the people in my local church can, the people I'm closest with in my community and friend group can. And I, I mean, part of writing this book is to say, like the vast majority of Christians from time immemorial have lived these lives of ordinary faithfulness. And I want to say their ordinary faithfulness is no less valuable than whatever happens on a stage or a screen and is part of our celebrity fixation, a way of devaluing kind of normal hidden faithfulness that nobody necessarily sees or notices except for God. And we believe has some kind of eternal impact. So I want to retrain my imagination and my own understanding of Christian identity to be more about the local church and embodied Christian community than the people who I consider myself to be a fan of, Mm -hmm. you know, because fandom can be really shallow. I mean, we see this with all kinds of celebrities. You can be just as easily abhorred if you mess up as you are adored, like one misstep Mm. and your fans turn against you and you are persona non grata. Um, So fandom is very fickle, you know, Mm. and because it's not actually rooted in real relationship. And I want us all to get back to the primacy of real relationship. Wow. That's really good. Yeah. Cause there's, there's a sense in which I think, you know, as you think about for the person where it's like, is it the person's work um, that's terminating in love for Christ and love for neighbor? That's like helping me be a better follower. Or is it, you know, in our, in our own way, it can be our own like miniature Christian clout chasing, clout chasing where it's like, Oh, like, have you read the such and such's latest book? Or like, Oh, like I saw the part. And it's like, there's just like gratification we get from, being in the know of the popular, mm. right? So it's almost like um, chasing after this, I don't know, this thing in Christian culture rather than Christ. Um, mm. And I mm. think, yeah, that's that's a slippery slope. That's I'm glad mm. you brought that up. I think kind of along those lines too, uh, and you mentioned Twitter earlier, like there's a, with that, there becomes this great, possibility that we can slide into um, as well. All of us have this opportunity through social media to both, right? There's an opportunity to minister and to reach, um, you know, friends and peers and whatever the circle that God has, you know, uh, given us. And then there's also a way where we can um, seek that same kind of uh, uh, attention and temptation. And so uh, how do you, how do you think we as just ordinary Christians, right? Because this can become a problem for all of us, like you say, because mm-hmm. of social media. Uh, how mm-hmm. do we balance that opportunity to serve and be able to speak truth uh, in a unique way 
and the mm-hmm. temptation to chase glory through, you know, building mm-hmm. building platform? Yeah, it's a good question. And I feel like I'm trying to learn the answer to that question as we go. Cause I don't, I know that I haven't always done it well. I, I do think that as with all media, like social media is not neutral and every platform has its own operating system and rules, like unspoken rules for like mm. what makes a successful account. So just taking Twitter as an example, I mean, Twitter feeds on conflict, opposition, gossip. It is just, it is a very chatty platform where people have lots of opinions and go at each other. And so um, it's not to say that, you know, expressing an opinion or sharing an article or an idea is wrong. I mean, I think that's part of what the medium can be for and can even contribute to positive, constructive conversation. For me, at least looking at motive, like, am I Am I seeking to use my words in the world to ultimately build up and bless rather than to um, to tear down or to get attention because I know it kind of works, you know? Mm. Um, so entering into all of these media, kind of just being aware of the unspoken rules, like on Instagram, totally different game am I giving into a temptation to present like a perfectly curated life message? Cause I know that that's what works and getting um, a kind of attention from that, that is not ultimately about pointing people to Christ. So, yeah, I think a lot of this comes down to motive. I would also say I have personally benefited in specific times from taking a break. I, I think, you know, I've, I've never encountered anyone coming back from a break or a fast from social media saying that wasn't worth it. Like everybody I know who has taken this said, I feel mm-hmm. more centered. I for, I feel more at peace. I feel um, more trusting of God's providence and work in the world. I'm not as prone to lash out. Also, I just have so much more time and energy to think about and do other things. Mm-hmm. Um, so just, yeah, being, if you, if you find yourself kind of wanting to go back to those media and, and feed them, um, learning to practice a kind of detachment, knowing, yes, I'm here for now, but I can just as easily step away and I know I'm going to be okay. Um, I know I can live without this, whatever I'm getting from this, I know that I can live without it. And I think fasting or breaks helps us remember that actually, you know, we can, we can go on without that kind of attention or ego that we get from those media. Yeah. We've got to learn how to limit things that are trying, again, I'm big on like actively knowing how you're being formed. I think I've repeated myself a couple of times, but the need to step out and say, I need to breathe so I can regroup and then come back um, to be in a really healthy Mm -hmm. space. Mm -hmm. Okay, Lynn, I'm going to end us uh, with this final question that points back to uh, a quote you have in your dedication. Me and Tamarcus were Mm. talking with you about this. And when I read this, I was just like, oh, I'm about to be laid out in all the best ways (laughs) by Caitlin's (laughs) book. But you say, to the number who live faithfully a hidden life and rest in unvisited tombs. 
And that is a quote from George Eliot's Middlemarch. And so can you mm-hmm. just tell us why that Mm. was what you chose (laughs) to dedicate and kind of maybe how that encapsulates a vision of what it looks like for us to take what we have, which is platforms not going away, but how do we do it well for the glory of God? Mm -hmm. Well, I cannot read that passage of Middlemarch without getting teary. Mm -hmm. Um, This notion that the world is held together by people loving and surfing in very normal quotidian ways that we don't see and can't see this side of eternity. Um, And really coming to believe that that is how God primarily works through us in the world. Um, That we are not now privy to all like the, the millions of saints who have loved and served in Christ-like ways, you know, in relationships with their spouse, with their neighbor, with their people in their community, just um, like faithfully showing up for people is actually what so much of what holds the world together and keeps it from falling apart. And I want to be the kind of person who is content with, that vision of the Christian life. You know, I grew up at a time in the evangelical movement where I was told really from a a young age, like you need to be prepared to go and do big things for God, like big and dramatic things. You're going to be serving as a missionary overseas. You're going to be debating atheists on your college campus. You're going to be evangelizing. And that has not turned out to be true for me and actually for most of us. And I want to say, what if the big thing for God is actually starting really small with the person in front of us and loving them as Christ loves us? Um, So, I mean, Middlemarch is like 800 pages. I read it during the pandemic. It's not, (laughs) I think I understood maybe 60% of it, but it is a really, the story is a really, it's a beautiful story Hmm. of someone who actually at a young age thinks she's going to go do these big things for God and basically be a martyr. And instead God calls her to like very um, normal relationships and normal ways of serving mm. him. And I find that so incredibly beautiful. Mm-hmm. You know, our gospel is one of redemption and restoration and the way that God has set things up is that his work of restoration and in, in, in pushing back the darkness and healing the brokenness of sin um, that ultimately happens through Jesus, he does that work through us. And that we, like you said, Caitlin, would fall in love with the ordinary, that we would fall in love with the ordinary faithfulness that we're called to, the communities that we're called to, that we'd be more identified with the people that we are doing life with who know us, who are proximity to us, who have a, we are accountable to, then to an image that's projected to us on a platform that can speak truth, but is distant and far. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. That the world is changing. And so social media and platform, this idea of celebrity is not going away. But the main thing and the main focus that we have as believers has remained steady and should remain steady of how am I, how are the loves in my life more rooted in who God is than who I want people to see me as? 
um, mm. and to fall more in love with God and less in love with people loving us. And it's a mm. constant battle, really, because it's why I choose to have my loves rooted in God or my loves rooted in things that are not connected to God, which is why we're kind of in this situation in our world in the first place, according to mm. our biblical narrative. Um, thank you, Caitlin. Your book offers a lot of wisdom, yes. a lot of insight. And again, especially for the fact that platform is not going away. And so mm. how do we steward it well? Mm -hmm. And how do we not have more stories on our timelines of leaders who have fallen from grace, but leaders who have leaned into it really well hmm. and loving Lord and stewarding what they've been given. Thank you. Yes. Thank Thanks you. so much for this conversation. Yeah. It was great. Thank you for listening to Culture Matters. This episode was produced by Chris Starr, Chelsea Conway, and Mandy Page. If you're a regular follower of the podcast, we would love to hear from you. You can message us on social. Check the show notes for more information on how best to connect with us, as well as find out more information about our guests and ways to support their work. See y'all next time.